How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I've got a, I've got a um, request from you guys. This is not going to translate well to the podcast um, because it's a visual thing, but I want to see your... Um, Mm. I want to see. I like where this is going. I've got two different requests, actually. I want to see your scanning face, like you're the one scanning someone else, like you're in a scanner fight, and you're you're scanning your enemy. Ready? All right, go. Todd's is pretty good. We all kind of look like we're taking a massive shit. Yeah, so do they, to be fair. Yeah. Now, now I want to see the face of you being scanned. Like, think of the people in the warehouse or the, the art studio when yeah. they're like, you know, now where's your I'm being scanned face? I think of them a lot. Okay. <clears throat> uh, I'm being scanned. Okay. That's good. That's good. We're doing good, guys. It's good podcast material. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to love it. All right. Well, hello and welcome to Set of a Shock. It's the podcast where we explore the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I am one of your hosts, Gary Horn. Hey, I'm Justin Bishop. And I'm the homeless guy hanging out in the food court who you might give a dollar to, but only if other people are watching, Mr. Todd A. Davis. <laughs> and um, sorry, guys, I just have this really bad headache. Um, anyways, uh, thank you for joining us for part four of our series titled The New Flesh, The Body Horror. Of David Cronenberg. Was the headache thing a part of your bit? Yes, yes, it was. Okay, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because he's a scanner. Because well, oh. I talked because I talked about like people being douchebags to homeless people, and that's what. Um, yeah, and also he just ate half of a leftover hot dog. Well, so that's probably going to affect your tummy more than your head. I swear, I used to think hot dogs gave me headaches, but that's a whole other podcast. I guess. Nitrates <laughs> can do that. Yeah, so see, there you go. Yeah, nitrates can do that. Yeah, yeah. so uh, anyway, welcome to Biology Shock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, well, this, well, we are talking about bodies here, though, right? Yeah, yeah that body horror. So it bringing it all back around. Uh, yeah, it kind of fits. Although this one's a little more concerned with the mind, I guess. But there's some body shit in there, especially um, at the end, or bodies, you know, exploding in in various ways. So. Here we are. Part. What did we, did we say? What part of the series? I, I wasn't part four. Part four of our David Cronenberg series. I think last week I said that we were doing six parts, and that's wrong. We're doing seven movies because there's three more after this one. Cool. So this is part four of seven, actually. Unless we just get to the end and we're like, you know what? We don't want this to be the end of the road, as the uh, <laughs> as the boys to men would say. We want to keep on going with David Cronenberg. Who knows? It could happen. Or what if we get to the end of this one and we're like, we've had enough of David Cronenberg. 
Well, we're not going to do that because <laughs> I've already invested in other movies. <laughs> we're going to talk about them. God damn it. <laughs> All right. So by this time in his career, David Cronenberg was becoming pretty well known in his native Canada. Uh, we, he's already made four commercial films by this point. Each one was more successful than the one before, uh, with the exception of the non-horror film Fast Company, uh, which was kind of a dud on arrival. But most of that success came in Canada and and actually some in Europe. Uh, and although all of his films had been released in some form or another in the U.S., none of them had made really a huge impact here. That would all change with his next film, the one that would make him a mainstream director, not only in the Canadian market, but here in the U.S. as well. Uh, that film, which is infamously known as the movie with the exploding head, is, of course, 1981's Scanners. I would like to scan all of you in this room, one at a time. There are four billion people on Earth. 237 are scanners. They'll control your mind, conquer your will, manipulate your body like a toy. Self-destruct, five seconds. The pain begins. And your flesh. And your brain. Four seconds. You feel its power. Three seconds. The pressure. The pounding, the terror. Two seconds. You can't breathe. It chokes you. It destroys you. <laughs> One second. You begin to self-destruct. Experience the terrifying power of scanners. You pray it will end, and it will. Scanners, their thoughts can kill. This was so much fun, you guys. <laughs> what, this really movie? Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Oh, I'm really glad you liked it. So, yeah. I, I, like, sorry I, to show my hand early, but no, it's I, fine. I I'm, I'm glad. Out. I'm glad to know because you know we've said this before, but I never really know where Todd's going to land on some yeah. movies, and and I this mean, one's. I have some thoughts about it, but it sure, was yeah. very fun. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> good, good. So we talked a little bit about it on our last episode, the Canadian tax shelter era. We actually went into it pretty in depth. I think this is the era in Canadian filmmaking where investors were able to claim. 100% of the money that they invested into Canadian films as a tax cut, resulting in a deluge of film production in Canada. One of the uh, most uh, impactful moments in Canadian film history ever. I mean, there were a lot of crap movies made during this time, but there were some great movies made as well. And David Cronenberg's career uh, honestly may not exist to have existed without it, at least not the way that the way that it's kind of played out. But as is usually the case, greed kind of got in the way of things. Uh, that tax shelter ended up eventually attracting promoters and professionals who were more interested in earning high fees for their contributions than in actually making movies. So as a result, the budgets on these films began to skyrocket, partially inflated by the salaries that were paid to Hollywood stars who were cast in the films to make them more bankable. Uh, but mostly because of the large fees that were in, paid to guys like investment brokers, lawyers, accountants, who th these are folks who were needed to help interpret the complex federal regulations and restrictions that were required to comply with the tax shelter laws. Basically, you get a bunch of money men involved and budgets have to start going up because they got to pay these guys. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, we've seen everything from, you know, Sam Raimi and his folks, you know, strapping a camera to a board on top of a car to, to stuff like this, you know, sort of manipulating uh, the tax laws to whatever it is to get your art out there. And I think this is actually kind of a, 
a really great way to make films. You, well, have someone, you have someone who's willing to give you money who really doesn't care about whatever you do with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to an extent. But there was a lot, there were a lot of regulations and stuff that they had to meet. And the thing is that you start, they had to start getting these guys involved who had, they didn't care anything about making good movies. Mm. As long as they were going to make mm-hmm. money off of it, they were investing. And like we talked about on our last episode, some of these movies barely even got a, re- a release because they didn't have to get a release and they didn't have to make money at the box office for these guys to get their tax break. They weren't getting necessarily a return on investment uh, in the same way that you know a traditional movie investor might, but they were getting to write that off of their taxes of whatever they already owed. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there were some good things that came out of it, but it was short-lived, you know? Mm-hmm. And eventually, investor resistance began to grow. And in 1982, the tax rules were changed. Uh, they were changed to reflect a 50% write-off instead of 100%. And when that happened, the whole scheme had basically run its course. So Scanners was actually made at the tail end of this era. And it was rushed into production without a finished script, without constructed sets, uh, in order to be able to claim the subsidies. The film, however, began its life much earlier, in the early 1970s, as a script called The Sensitives, which is a story about psychics that David Cronenberg had written. It later evolved into a broader story called Telepathy 2000, which, I mean, let's not forget David Cronenberg's really bad at making movie titles. (laughs) (laughs) Telepathy Telepathy 2000 is a terrible name for a movie, Uh, but he actually was trying to get that into production with Roger Corman as the producer. So maybe he's like, Hey, this guy made death race 2000. Maybe he'll make telepathy 2000. Maybe it was a business move. I don't know. Well, yeah. And and new world pictures had distributed, you know, the brood. So maybe just like trying to play into that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he already had a relationship with Roger Corman. Uh, and Cronenberg had been revising this story over the years and it had actually originally planned to film it as a follow-up to Rabbit before he moved on to The Brood, uh, which, of course, we know that he decided to move on to The Brood because he was, uh, let's say, inspired by his recent divorce. <laughs> yeah, I was reading one thing that said that uh, he, he was working on Scanners up until about the time his uh, wife got pregnant or something, too, and then that, that kind of distracted him, and then the wife and him and all of that stuff happened, and then, you know, that led to the brood, basically. So, oh, also, I guess uh, this was that they were Pierre David, who he had worked with before, you know, that's that's also part of that relationship. I meant to say right. that earlier, that, uh, you know, he had helped distribute the brood, and so he had, you know, he, he literally says like we had some budget left over at the end of the year. We had six weeks to get something done. And we were like, uh, get Cronenberg. We got the scanners thing laying here. So. Yeah. They knew that he had something, even though it wasn't a completed script at that point, they knew that he had, you know, at least the building blocks to create something. And, and they had a working relationship. You know, Pierre David had taken over from Cinef- uh What was it? Cineflix. The uh, yeah. the distribution company that distributed uh, Shivers and Rabbit, Pierre David had taken over. So this, the Brood was kind of the beginning of their relationship. And yeah, Pierre David comes along with this one. And, you know, he knows that Cronenberg can bring stuff in on time and under budget and figures, hey, we got a little bit of money to spend. What, let's let's call this guy. He's a known, a known quantity. It's funny. Like the thing about David Cronenberg now at this point, at least in his, in his, story is that he's come a long way from being this wide-eyed little guy who like saw winter kept us warm and realized he can make a movie one day and uh and then now he's in this kind of odd spot where he's been doing it but now he's become known as this horror guy and uh that was 
I don't think really ever his intention. In fact, <laughs> it was not what he said. He did not set out to be a horror movie director. No. Yeah. And when he discusses it, he always says like uh, in interviews, like horror found me. I just put pen to paper. He was in an interesting spot though, because on one hand it's, it's weird. Cause he, he was disappointed. I, I read somewhere with uh, new world pictures, the way they had distributed the brood because yeah, they, they kind of threw it into the exploitation market. You know. Yeah, exactly, because they've been doing stuff like Piranha and Death Race 2000. But yeah, they focus more on the gory and horror aspects, and he had been thinking about the family dynamics that were going on in The Brood. Uh, but he he does say, like, I mean, I had a quote from him where he said, like, this was the most classic horror film I've done, the circular structure, generation into generation, the idea you think it's over, and then suddenly you realize it's starting up again. Um so he talking gets about it the brood. Yeah, talking about the brood. So it's not like he doesn't understand it. He does say this this was the most straightforward horror, but uh but I guess I, I see what he his concern would be with stuff like that, though, is because it affects how things are re- uh received, which I guess I'm bringing up just because scanners, I think, also has this reputation for being like one of these major horror movies, and it's still David Cronenberg. It's still the yeah. same kind of thing and uh i mean it's not even the production company's fault by the way i was watching this bob mclean interview on uh the criterion dvd and uh during the discussion they talk about how somebody passed out at the screening watching uh scanners and so you know he's getting those great screening reviews and cronenberg was like we had 37 at rabid so i'm losing my touch i guess (laughs) (laughs) can you imagine like if people like people don't faint at movies anymore because you know you can see the shit on the walking dead or whatever it's not like the gore's not a big deal but there was a time it seems like in the late 70s early 80s where motherfuckers were just passing out all the time at horror <laughs> movies like because we, we we've talked about the um not on this show but we've talked about uh, the exorcist and and how people were just like fainting left and right yeah, <laughs> you know, when yeah. they saw that movie nowadays you only just, get it for like the passion of the christ and stuff you right, gotta, you, gotta, you gotta catch people. Unaware. You gotta kill Jesus. <laughs> That's how you do it. That's how you get their attention. Um, I mean, they should have known. Yeah, honestly. Uh, but uh, but so, I, I, well, I was gonna say. I mean, just it, it's still it's funny. He's got that rep though. But then Scanners is coming out. I mean, it does have. It's got its stuff, but I mean, he's still working with the same stuff that he's always been working with on this one. I mean, just like the humanity of people and how, what separates human from like, I don't know, like going into something else. And, uh, yeah. and I don't know. Uh, I also just script wise, since we were talking about it, I saw it was, I think he's related it to like something like William S. Burroughs story, naked lunch, which he's going to adapt. Well, later. yeah. Which he makes later on. Yeah. But, uh, there's these people called the cinders in there, but, um, I was thinking, like, I was looking around and like Brian De Palma, and you know, like Carrie had just come out during Rabbit, and mm-hmm. and he also came out with the Fury right after, where it's like telepaths get recruited to the CIA mm-hmm. and stuff. But anyway, I was just thinking about that, what it was inspired by. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to add from that McLean interview, and then I'll shut the fuck up, is. Uh, <laughs> If you, if you shut up, it's not going to be a very good podcast, honestly. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I thought it was funny in relation to the horror guy thing they were talking about. Uh, you know, if he, if how his kids viewed that or something, and uh, he was saying his daughter loved it. His daughter loved watching horror movies, and she would invite friends over, and they would have parties and watch his movies. Uh, Cronenberg's daughter? 
Yeah, Cronenberg's daughter. Nice. And uh, he said he insisted to her that she get like signed parental consent beforehand, but from and, from the kids' parents, yeah, from the friends' parents, yeah, from the friends' parents, so that they could uh, come over and then he would like screen the movies for them. Huh. Nice. The main cast for Scanners includes Stephen Lack as Cameron Vell, uh, Jennifer O'Neill as Kim Obrist, and Patrick McGuhan as. Dr. Paul Ruth. So we're going to talk a little bit about these uh, because these are all names that we've never had come up on the show before. Uh, we'll start with Stephen Lack because Stephen Lack's an, an interesting dude. Uh, if you look him up on IMDb, he's got a fairly small filmography. Scanners is easily his most notable film role. Uh, outside of this film, he's probably most well-known for a 1977 film called The Rubber Gun, uh, a film that he also co-wrote along with that film's director, which was Alan Moyle, who we mentioned back in our Rabbit episode. He's the guy who kills Marilyn Chambers at the end and would go on to direct Pump Up the Volume and Empire Records. So oh, there, nice. there's a, I mean, the, I guess the Canadian film market's pretty small, so you know, yeah. it's a small world, so there's going to be a lot of crossover. Uh, but yeah, they, they made that movie together and Cronenberg had seen that movie, seen The Rubber Gun, uh, and that's actually what led him to cast Lack in Scanners. Yeah, he's, he's got a, a he's got a real leading man look. It's kind of surprising that you know he didn't do much else after except that. That, well, he's not that's a all he's actor. I said I said a look. I didn't say he was a good actor. <laughs> and I, think and I been, don't I don't know that I, he would take offense to that. He's like a very proud artist and the Bohemian yeah, yeah. type guy, you know. So it it, it and to your point, uh, the smaller scene, uh, he 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 says in in interviews like that you know he was he was mostly concerned with art painting and stuff like that so uh the, he just you you make friends in that scene in montreal and stuff and word gets around he said it's kind of the center of the art scene and so you know he just gets a call one day and is like somebody needs your help can you come act on this movie uh or what are you doing these dates and he's like oh i'm just i'm painting so yeah, yeah. he's like yeah, he go help <laughs> He never set out to be an actor. He, he was uh, an artist. And he's he's not done a lot since this movie, acting-wise, although he does have a small role in Dead Ringers with Cronenberg. But he's actually become a very successful and very well-known artist, a uh, sculptor and a painter, mostly paint, I believe. So I'm giving him uh, a pass uh, on, on, uh, his, on my leading man, my Cronenberg leading man criticisms. Uh, well, I, I honestly think... And, you know, maybe this is a discussion to have later in the episode, but I honestly think that his performance, which is sort of wooden, I think actually, I think it actually fits the role because this is a guy who, until he starts taking ephemeral, until he meets Dr. Ruth and starts taking ephemeral, he's got voices in his head. He doesn't know how to act around people. I mean, they and they say that in the movie, like he doesn't know how to interact with people. So once his mind is clear and he is interacting with people, it's a little bit awkward and a little bit weird and a little bit wooden. But I think that actually fits for a, a character who has never really been able to communicate with other people. That's fair. It, it kind of yeah. works in a way that like where he wouldn't work in just any role, you know, but it kind of works for this sp very specific role. Mm. <laughs> Some interview, uh, I love this quote from him. He said, uh, you know, they were asking him like, what made him take the role. And he said he he read it and he thought, or I thought I understood the script. And what makes any work of art great is resistance. If you don't have resistance, you can't grow. There are people that make you feel good. There are people that remind you they're alive, that you're alive and will engage you and fire back. 
Somebody could throw a rose over the tennis net and somebody will hit a good ball back at you over the tennis net. You have to hit it back or return it. He said, I, with a rose, I'll stop and sniff it, but <laughs> I'd rather have the ball. David gives good ball. David gives good ball. <laughs> that's, wow. that's, that's his quote. <laughs> Uh, I, I do. I like Stephen Lack. Like in, in interviews, he seems like a super nice, super charming guy. He was part of this bohemian art scene, you know, the starving artist until he wasn't because he became a very successful artist. Uh, it seems to be doing very well, but he seems like a genuinely nice guy in interviews. And he, he seems very well aware that he is not a very good actor. And he's like, I, he's like, I was just trying to make sure, make sure I said the lines right. <laughs> Cause he, he had a hard time doing that because he was not a trained actor and, you know, uh, and there's some very difficult dialogue in this movie with all these uh-huh. weird scientific terms that are probably mostly made up by David Cronenberg. So he would have to like do you know multiple takes just to get the dialogue right. So next on our list of uh, cast members is Jennifer O'Neill. So Jennifer O'Neill, she's a Brazilian-born American actress who had had her first lead role in a film in 1970. Uh, she was in Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo opposite John Wayne, which is a pretty, wow. a pretty big debut. Yeah role or at least debut lead role uh her life is pretty wild i went down a little bit of a rabbit hole looking into her uh she's been married nine times to eight different men she remarried her sixth husband they got divorced again later on uh, so one of her ex-husbands which was a film producer and choreographer who st- actually he staged the original routines of the Chippendale dancers, this guy, Nicholas Denoya was his name, her ex-husband. He was like her fourth husband, maybe. Uh, (laughs) So he was murdered in 1987 when he was shot in the face by one of his former associates uh, in his his office building after hours. Somebody came in and shot him in the face. He, he, yeah. (laughs) This is of course, well after the brood, but this is just, you know, her, her life when I looked into it she she actually suffered a gunshot wound herself in 1982 when she accidentally shot herself in the abdomen while trying to determine if a gun was loaded it was loaded oh boy and then she still acts on occasion like if you look at her IMDB and stuff there's still you know fairly recent acting roles uh, but after becoming a born again Christian in 1986, she's devoted much of her of her time to pro life activism. Uh, it, it's it's she it's very strange. List lo, looking up some of like the more recent interviews with her. She is a very interesting person. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the uh, films and the la- that she's made in the last like 20 or 30 years either seem to be cheap made for video stuff. Or the kind of like faith-based movies that church youth groups attend together, you know, like the real making, good ones. Yeah, she's making those kind of movies. Not not even the not even the, like Kirk Cameron ones, like the sub Kirk Cameron ones. <laughs> oh Man, wow! I'm just saying, it sounds. I'd want to settle down too after after maybe the <laughs> abdomen shot. Be yeah, like, yeah. Maybe. Well, she did it to herself. Yeah, but <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to know the conditions surrounding that situation. You know, at least she why, found why, something she cares why? about, and she's focused in on it. And now she's probably not handling guns as much. And uh, you know, I don't know. In my experience living in South Carolina, a lot of people who are, uh, let's say, pro-life activists also are really into guns. <laughs> so <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well. You know, so when you're an activist for for a lot of things. You want to make sure you can 
really get your point across. <laughs> <laughs> so Patrick McGuhan, who plays Dr. Ruth, uh, he was one of the more seasoned performers in the cast, uh, though most of his career was on television, not on film. Uh, he started on a show in the early 60s called Danger Man. Uh, then he went on to star and produce a show called The Prisoner, which was a very popular show. Uh, he also wrote and directed several episodes of that one. So that's what he was mostly known for, because those, those shows were both big hits that ran for several seasons. Nice. After Scanners, though, his most well-known film role is as King Edward in Braveheart. And oh, yeah. uh, his final film role was as Billy Bones in Disney's Treasure Planet. So that was his... Uh, his last film role uh, was nice. a was a voice role. Yeah, uh, I like this uh, guy a lot, though. Yeah, like, also like Oliver Reed, heavy heavy drinker. Yeah, was drunk a lot. Uh, yeah, Stephen Lack uh, talked about he just kind of was kind of quiet for a lot of the time, but um, he apparently uh, didn't understand a lot of the script. Yeah, like he, he said would... nobody <laughs> explained sci-fi to him apparently, and so he was very frustrated. Uh, they said there was this like Winnebago they'd hang out in in between shoots and. Uh, he said he was in there one day just screaming about how he did not understand. I don't know <laughs> and, what any of this means. <laughs> and he said, this is absolutely meaningless. It's meaningless. It's okay. It's okay, Pat. We, uh, we, we, we understand. <laughs> yeah. He said Lack had to like comfort him. And uh, he said, Stephen Lack was like, I didn't really understand either. I just had faith that David was going to stitch this Frankenstein monster together. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, we can't forget the, in my opinion, the true star of Scanners, the great Michael Ironside. Uh, yes. making his, I think this is his third appearance on Cinema Shock. So he was in Total uh, Recall, Starship yeah. Troopers in this. I think, those, yeah. I think those are the only three. This uh, is the but, appearance with the most hair. Yeah, yeah. Ironside <laughs> was um, very early in his career at this time. Uh, he was, oddly enough, only about 30 years old when they filmed this movie. Wow. <laughs> which I don't, I don't i don't know how that's possible but i looked i looked it up because he was born in 1951 this movie came out in 1981 right so he was 29 to 30 years old during the filming of this he's just uh, which, always looked like he's like 45 to 50 he, he came out of the womb <laughs> with a fucking comb over <laughs> and pock marks on his face like nice. he came out and that just wild-eyed grid yeah. <laughs> i do like i'm i'm I just turned 40 years old. Well, I'm not just like six months ago. I, yeah, I'm 40 years old and I feel a lot better about how I'm aging <laughs> after seeing 29 year old Michael Ironside in this movie. Nice. <laughs> uh, so as I said, he was born in 1951. He was born in Toronto. He's a Canadian as well. Uh, he made his feature film debut in a 1977 film called Outrageous with an exclamation part point mm. at the end that's the official title so you can't forget that uh, he is credited as drunk in that movie mm. uh, he had a few other small roles in canadian films in the following years and they all have character names like torturer pimp bartender murdered police detective they don't have any none of them have any real names for a while uh, but scanners was his first major starring role what maybe one of the first where he had, his character actually had a name yeah he you want to talk about hustle or uh, if you don't like those uh uh, those words, uh, just, just a guy who works hard, who like is determined that this is what I do. Michael Ironside yeah, seems like that drive. guy. Like, yeah. you know, there's those guys that like stumble into a role or you're born and you look like, you know, I don't want to take anything away from him, but you know, you look like Chris Hemsworth. There's a good shot. You're going to be in the Avengers one day. 
right. but uh, <laughs> the, uh but michael ironside he doesn't have any of that working for him as justin's been so keen to point out and uh, he uh he just <laughs> he just he's been going he talks about like you read more about him he was he was there on set all the time anywhere he could get on set and it didn't matter if he was in front of the screen or behind the camera like he was working as a grip he said he would do like he would be on a film in one place and then go work as a grip in another place. And uh, that's just what he did just to be seen and just to make, you know, just to network and to get to know people and work his way in. But this was like his 13th or 14th movie at this time that he'd been on. And uh, he said he was only there to audition for at the time. It was only going to be the black and white scene that they showed. Uh, Stephen Lack, like in the, you know, where yeah. they, he wasn't even a main character. He huh. was just auditioning for that. And then a week later, they called him back and were like, can you do more days? And he was like, sure. And he said the character literally evolved on the run. Um, he said that's that they, wild because now, I mean, he became like practically the second lead of the movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Something that was supposed to be like a one one scene, you know, and, and the fact that he's as good as he is. Maybe they maybe they built up the role because they saw that guy in that scene. And we're like, oh, we got to give this guy more scenes. And of course, as we'll we'll discuss a little bit, the script was in an ever evolving state during filming. Mm. Yeah, and he loved it, man. You hear him talk about it, like he's just like uh, he said it, he they, he was fully complimentary of David Cronenberg, saying that he was constantly having to change things and move things around and do things on the run. And uh, he said he's, he's seen other directors try to do that, and they always lose what's what's the point and what's going on. And he says that David like has this internal compass that keeps him focused on where exactly he's trying to get to. And, uh, but he loved like everything about it. The political statements. He said he viewed himself as like Che Guevara and, uh, like that kind of deal. Like he was, yeah. uh, um, but I mean, I think he also really got the role because you'd think I always would have figured Michael Ironside to be like a, actor's actor i don't know why i just always thought of him that way like maybe he's that's how he really is but his uh his grandfather was like a sci-fi writer and so oh, yeah. like he uh he was really into science fiction so he said he 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 always wanted to be a writer like his grandfather and he wanted to write sci-fi and do stuff like that so this was like really right up his alley uh he said his grandfather in the 20s or 30s was like friends with uh frank herbert and uh spoke seven languages and all of this stuff. Wow. So he said he read uh, Dune out of a shoebox because Frank Herbert had given it to his grandfather. And uh, <laughs> so he said he, he just has a shoebox with Dune in it with like scribblings all over it and stuff. That's, that's wow. Yeah, but <laughs> Do you I think he somehow sweet. got involved in this never came up that, that I, I can remember in my research, uh, but do you think he became involved in Total Recall because of Cronenberg's attachment to that movie for a while? Or do you think that's just a total mm, coincidence? I wish we'd know, known that, but I mean, it's it seems like that's very possible. Yeah, because he was, I mean, Cronenberg was heavily involved in, in that movie for a long, long time, uh, which we talk about, I think, pretty in-depth back on our Total Recall episode. But I'm wondering if Michael Ironside was like a, a holdover from Cronenberg working on it. Because we well, know that like Arnold, that was recast because I think he he had John Hurt in it, who he gets to work with, of course, later on, uh, way down the line in history of violence. But I think um, this is like uh, or William Hurt, excuse me. Not John yeah, Hurt, William Hurt. 
this was a growing moment for him, though, too. He tells this story about like uh, being out to dinner with Jennifer O'Neill and her husband, one of them. And uh, <laughs> whichever one it was at the time. Yeah. No, it and was all was, not. It was all of them. He uh, he took roles for for scale, he said, or scale plus 10. I think he said sometimes he would get. And uh, he said he was out to dinner with them and she was talking to him and just like, well, what are you buying the crew for Christmas? Because, you know, it was in December. And uh, he's like, I'm trying to see how I can steal my wardrobe. What are you talking about? <laughs> and then her husband's like, why? And he's like, because I don't have any money. <laughs> and then they were like, well, how much are they pay you? And he's like five and change. And, and uh, the husband was like, like 500,000. And he's like, no, like 5,000. They were like, week per week. And he's like, no, like 5,000. Uh, that's how much money yeah. I'm getting for total. <laughs> how much are you getting paid? And then he said, they told him and it was some obnoxious number, you know, and he was just like, that was the day that I realized, oh, I should be making a living doing this now. Like yeah. this should be, this should be, they should be paying me more. He learned, he learned from that. But to your point too, about it, making his name, he did tell this story too, about being on the set of Terminator Salvation he was working and uh, this, this rounds it all back to even what you were talking about with him before at his aging, because he said he was on the set of Terminator salvation and uh, he was with like, I guess that was McG wasn't it or something. And, yeah. That uh, one was McG. Yeah. He said he was sitting there with him and some of the other cast and they were watching the monitors and there was this PA that kept staring at him. And he said, it looked like she was building courage and she finally walked over and she said, uh, Mr. Ironside, can I ask you something? And he's like, sure. And she said, are you related to the Michael Ironside who's in Scanners? And <laughs> he said, yes, I am. And she said, she looked so proud. And she was like, I knew it. Talent must run in your family. And then she just skipped <laughs> off. Said, Every, everybody else looked really uncomfortable. And I was just like, why is everybody looking weird? I'm old enough to be that Michael Ironside's dad now. So that's kind of a compliment. But did she, but did she not have any sort of sense of like, that was 30 years ago? <laughs> I guess she thought maybe this guy was like the son of that Michael Ironside. Oh, wow. Uh, so anyway. while we're, uh, while we're talking about the cast, we've also got to mention Robert A. Silverman, because uh, this is actually his third appearance in a Cronenberg film, and I don't think we've talked about him yet. Uh, he wasn't very noticeable in Rabbit, but he is in Rabbit. He's credited as Man in Hospital, uh, but he was uh, uh, Jan Hartog in The Brood, you know, the guy with the, the cancer-y thing on his neck, oh, yeah. you know, mm, that we mm -hmm. meet, a very yeah. eccentric guy, uh, very memorable and very, you know, fun for that he's only in the one one or two scenes but very memorable in that movie uh, and in scanners uh he has his most memorable role yet he plays benjamin pierce which is the uh the scanner who's like a tortured artist who murdered his whole family when he was a kid you know yeah uh, i think you're in big trouble chum <laughs> i really like this guy i don't know what it is about him he's just one of those like really fun character actors who you kind of wish that you would see more of you know like yeah he's just very fun to watch i mean he can clearly only i mean maybe not i've only seen him in, in a couple of roles but he seems made for the like kind of eccentric character role you know i mean which is fine because that's some yeah. actors that's you know they spend their whole careers playing a specific type of role but it pays the bills uh he has mostly worked in canada if you look at his filmography including prom night he's in prom night another 
prominent Canadian horror movie of this time. Uh, and he was also cast by Cronenberg again in Naked Lunch and Existence. And he's also in two episodes of Friday the 13th, the series, including the episode Faith Healer, which was directed by David Cronenberg. Uh, and he also later appears in Jason X, which, of course, features Cronenberg in an on-screen role. Nice. So I don't think he's in Star Trek, though. Uh, Jason X is pretty damn close. Yeah, that's that's uh, got, as close got a as holodeck. He- yeah, that's about as close <laughs> as he gets. That's about as close as anybody gets because, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, so for this, besides Mr. David Cronenberg himself in terms of actors with uh, Star Trek credits, there's nobody. However, not one. Not one. Uh, however, I do have some thoughts on who would make good cast members. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, Jennifer O'Neill uh, should have been a scientist that Jordy uh, LaForge falls in love with. Uh, Stephen Lack. Uh, would play like a a theoretical physicist that has like a new technique for milking the engines for more warp that yeah i was thinking android yeah android (laughs) absolutely uh but he ends up turning into some weird creature and then michael ironside uh should be there to offset jeffrey combs uh because he has too much power i'm honestly surprised that ironside hasn't popped up in a star trek really surprising yeah (laughs) Yeah, i was like he must have been a klingon or like some sort of stuffy admiral or something. yeah there's so much that he could work in it's it's honestly very surprising to me especially because he's one of those actors who just works so much that yeah yeah and and he doesn't discriminate i mean he does mostly film but he he doesn't seem like one who discriminate between film and television roles it's that that i don't know i didn't look because i wanted to be surprised but yeah i am surprised but i'm surprised that he's not and with somewhere in there and with him being such like a such a sci-fi fan that's also like doubly surprising yeah yeah very strange well that was i was surprised by lawrence dane who plays uh braden keller i figured he would have because he was like he was like the most seasoned person besides McGowan, probably because and he was working in and he did mostly TV uh, from what I yeah. saw. But I just kind of scanned through it. But he started back in the 50s. And uh, yeah, he, uh, but anyway, he had broken his back. Before yeah, he was apparently in like immense pain when they were making this movie. Yeah, Ironside said he talked to him about it and said it was like the only uh, only time he wasn't in pain was when he was acting. So like yeah. he just uh so you look forward to it. but that guy was in yeah. like mission impossible and i was in bride of chucky uh, it's, a, it's got a pretty big role in bride of chucky yeah he was just he was just in all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. anyway yeah i like him in this role as well we didn't really talk about him but you know he's another one of those character actors he's still kicking i don't think he's working anymore but he's he's, in, he's like in his 80s probably but anyway let's move on to the filming of this movie so cronenberg stated at the time the Scanners was one of the most difficult films that he'd made so far, mostly because he and his crew were just ill-prepared. Uh, as we mentioned before, because they were rushing to get the film into production before Canada's tax shelter laws changed, they started filming before sets had been completed and before the script was even finished. They had one draft of a script, which Cronenberg had written in about three weeks, and that's it. That's what they were working off of. Uh, so Cronenberg said that he would spend most mornings of the shoot writing scenes. And then he'd scout for filming locations in the afternoon, and then they'd move on to actual filming. So that's how they're making this movie. It seems very chaotic and very stressful to me. Yeah. Uh, he would they he would have to kind of juggle the film shooting schedule around to make scenes that weren't ready to happen later in the shoot. Like maybe a scene they would have gone go ahead and shot, but 
the sets aren't done or the special effects aren't ready. So they would have to move that to later in the shoot and move on to something else. Uh, it's not, not an ideal way to make a movie. Yeah. He, mm. man, uh, Stephen Lant talked about, uh, well, uh, first of all, David Cronenberg, I think that first day there was like a car wreck, like a fatal car wreck near the set or something. And like, yeah. Just all of the crap he said. I think he they called thought that, they were cursed. Yeah, he said that was uh, quote the most disastrous shooting day I've ever had. Like he said, and then he uh, he said uh, Stephen Lack was saying that it was crazy. Like he he had been on this film right before this that it was like ten hour slow moving days, and he'd done that for like three weeks. So he was super tired, but then he was just like helping out a buddy, so he came and did this. And he said that David was like always moving and always moving forward very quickly two takes that's it that's all you got let's go let's go let's go wow. <laughs> that's all they had time for yeah Jeez. yeah and then also saying of course then you had things like patrick mcguin uh drinking heavily and yeah. being in a bad mood and yeah. uh <laughs> jennifer o'neill apparently did not realize how violent the movie was I uh, read the script uh, huh yeah oh there was no script <laughs> 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 so she she got upset somewhere in there wanted to quit and they had to convince her to stay on uh, so well, the film was primarily shot on location in Montreal and Toronto, uh, although the film never really mentions where it takes place. Uh, since the U.S. dominated the film market, the film kind of downplays its Canadian setting. They just uh, re- they, they do this a few times in the movie, but they just refer to it as North America, kind of a generic North America. This is where we're, this movie is set. Uh, although there are several, if you look, there are several like bilingual signs in the background that are noticeable that have French writing on them. So, you know, if, if you if you've got a keen eye, you can definitely tell that they're in Canada. Also, it looks cold as fuck all the time. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, several of Cronenberg's previous collaborators, such as cinematographer Mark Irwin, art director Carol Spire, and composer Howard Shore joined this one. Uh, but new to Cronenberg's cre- crew for this film was makeup artist Dick Smith, who provided the prosthetics for the climactic scanner duel and for the iconic exploding head scene. Nice. Uh, we have I don't know that we've talked about Dick Smith before. And, and, you know, he wasn't actually on set, I don't think, ever. He created stuff for this but he had just gotten done doing another shoot so he's like i i can work on this film but i'm not coming to set like you know so uh he he would make kind of how joe blasco did on rabbit i guess he would make things in his studio and send them to the set where they would be applied by other technicians on set but dick smith uh, is a legendary makeup effects guy uh, often nicknamed the godfather of makeup maybe because he was responsible for makeup effects on uh, the godfather Uh, But he also worked on films like The Exorcist. That's probably his most well-known piece of work. Uh, He did Taxi Driver. Uh, Later on, did Death Becomes Her, Amadeus. Uh, He won an Academy Award for Amadeus. Like, this guy is an absolute legend. Like, he, the, 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 um, you, you see it a lot now when you see people putting makeup effects on, but the idea of putting on prosthetic makeup on a face where you've got various layers, and instead of it being like a big mask, there's like, you've got a, a cheek, piece you've got a forehead piece all put on kind of separately and then blended that's a creation of dick smith it's something that every every like prosthetics makeup uh, you know effects guy now uses all the time but that was created by dick smith like this guy's a legend uh and they yeah they they kind of they got him uh on the recommendation of gary zeller who i think we'll talk about here in a minute but gary zeller's a special effects guy on this film and when they were looking for somebody to you know, to bring in to do the prosthetics, they're like, why don't we try to get Dick Smith? Doesn't hurt to ask, I guess, you know? Yeah. 
they said, yeah, they said if, if you ask him and he'll do it for the budget, we can afford them, bring him on. But yeah, I mean, he, he like you said, he's like everybody's uh, the grandfather of this whole thing. So like he's, yeah. he's everybody's inspiration. Um, I, I mean, think he interviews with Rick Baker, who is going to work with Cronenberg later. And Rick Baker is one of the like the all time great makeup guys. And he like is in awe of Dick Smith. Yeah. And, and they, that tells you anything. Wow. yeah they I, I can't remember if we mentioned him before with the bladder thing and the extras because they kind of did it in uh um why did i just forget the name of the first cronenberg movie we talked about uh, the shivers shivers god yeah. i keep wanting to say scanners but yeah no, that's this one yeah uh <laughs> it shivers they talk about you know the the pulsating little creature or something in well they do the bladder effect in the scene where um barbara Steele is kissing what's her name and the slug goes from one mouth to the other that's right that's right you see the the like throat kind of pulse out that's that's where they're using the bladder effects in that movie they were talking about that 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 was like uh kind of around the time that the exorcist stuff was happening yeah uh, so it's kind of interesting but but yeah. the, he uses bladder effects a little bit differently in this one. Bladder effects being, what's the best way to describe it? You've got a bladder that that you know is sits beneath you know the surface of some sort of prosthetic like skin that they can fill with liquid blood or air or whatever and make it look like the skin is you know bulging in some way. In in scanners, they did it in that last scene that battle between Vale and Revic where the veins are popping out of you know Michael Ironside's head or on on the arms or or later on in the scene where you know Cameron Vale's face is actually splitting open that's all done with bladder effects uh them doing it the, the way they do it with the veins is really cool cuz that's that's using bladder effects in a way that had never really been done before like this very specific shape uh, and, and, you know, when Cameron Vale is getting attacked in that scene, blood starts coming out of those veins that they pop up and then they start bleeding. And that was apparently never part of the plan originally, but because they were pumping stuff into the bladder, they're like, this stuff needs somewhere to go. So they like, I think poked a small hole in it. Steve uh, Lack was saying that was his uh, idea that, that, oh, yeah. was, that he felt like that was the most he's contributed uh to a film <laughs> is like they they couldn't get it to to pump properly and uh he was like well if you give it like a little air yeah then it'll go through and uh yeah they they, they did it with um people were using like some kind of silicon and uh silicon um silicon <laughs> the um but yeah they said uh they, they talked a lot about elvisite vinyl or something they would paint layers of elvisite uh and then it was like the stuff from like dental dams rubber and yeah. uh then they would like make the little tubes for the veins and so then you put that on top of the layer you just painted then uh you paint another little layer over it they talk about dick smith like the thing with dick smith and baker said this especially was like you can't see lines you can't like you could be standing next to the person you can't tell what's yeah. real and what's not and uh but yeah then they'd have to poke a little hole in it to get it to pump properly but then you you pump the air or liquid through it and then it pops up like a vein and it looks wicked uh then one of them was saying i can't remember if it was um zeller or whoever but um they they said that the only thing was like it uh on uh, you you just mentioned this but like the blood would squirt out and they were like oh shit 
And then they said, but for some reason, Cronenberg thought that was great. It looks cool. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) The guy, more blood. That's his catchphrase, right? Yes. (laughs) So, you know, that's a little bit about that, that climactic scene, but of course, if we're talking about the special effects, we got to talk about the head exploding scene. Uh, So to make this, there was a lot of trial and error to get this to happen. Uh, Eventually, the filmmaker settled on a plaster skull with a gelatin exterior that was packed with, and this is a quote from, from one of the effects guys, latex scraps, some wax, and just bits and bobs and a lot of stringy stuff that we figured would fly through the air a little better. Uh, so they made a, <laughs> they made a plaster, you know, uh, reproduction of the actor's head. Uh, Louis Legrand, I think is his name. That's mm-hmm. a great name. That's the actor uh, who, who plays the scanner in that scene. So they made a plaster uh, piece of his head and filled it with all this shit. And then they couldn't figure out how to, uh, make it explode. Oh, by the way, Steve, Stephen Dupuy, which is another one of the film's credited special effects artists, he gets interviewed a lot on the uh, Blu-ray. He also says that they use some leftover hamburgers from craft services in, in that head. So nice, some nice, nice good stuff. Um, oh, Dupuy, by the way, he's another frequent Cronenberg collaborator. If you look into that guy, he'd go on to work on the special makeup effects on the fly for which he won an Academy Award, an Academy Award that he shared with uh, Chris Wallace, who also, he's credited here as well on Scanners. He does some work here. Uh, and Dupuy would go on to do A History of Violence uh, and A Dangerous Method with Cronenberg, kind of two of Cronenberg's later films, uh, but also worked on films like RoboCop, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Jason nice. X, uh, 300. And Wayless has a pretty storied career as well, uh, but I think we'll probably talk about him a little bit more in depth when we do The Fly in a couple of weeks. Nice. Anyway, back to that exploding head. So they can't they can't figure out how to explode the head properly. Uh, they plan to blow it up with explosives. You know, put some explosives in this thing, blow it up. Uh, but when it came time to film the scene, the explosives weren't working. They couldn't get them to do what they wanted them to do. So they're, the crew's getting kind of fed up with how difficult this scene's becoming. You'd think this should be a pretty easy scene. We create a fake head, we blow it up, put some bomb, put a little bomb in it, and blow it up. It should be easy, but it's not working. So. Well, they had tried. They had tried plaster, mm-hmm. and they said that that just looks like a plaster head blowing up. It does, yep. And yeah. then they said they tried wax, and that still doesn't feel right. And then the other thing they they talk about is that they, you know, and you can see pictures of this online and stuff, uh, or on the documentaries and such. But uh, they had done squibs inside of the mold, and then they said that you know I think it was Irwin talks about then it, then it makes sparks and shows weird pressure. And, and so it just doesn't, it never looks quite right. doesn't look natural. Yeah. So they're getting fed up with it. And it was a, around this time that special effects supervisor Gary Zeller had an idea. Uh, Zeller's another really interesting guy, by the way. I mean, this is a guy who his job is blowing things up. So, you know, uh, he's got to be a little bit eccentric. He, he invented this stuff called Zell Gel, uh, which is this gelatin that can be put on an actor and set on fire without burning the actor uh, in the scene where, where, you know, Cameron Bell holds his hands out and he's got flames on his hands that they had Zell gel on him. Uh, uh, but okay. th- it's something that's used by stuntmen and stuff a lot in movies, but this guy essentially 
he invented it and, and named it after himself. Not in porn, as far as I can find, though. So nobody, <laughs> no. no, you just put a bunch of Zell gel on there and set something on fire and see what you can get. And I bet it's probably been used in porn somewhere. You're probably right. <laughs> um, they did tell an interesting story about him, though, just how great he was at what he does, like knowing about py- Pyro. They were talking about that gas station scene that like a crowd had gathered yeah. and was watching the gas station blow up. Everything blew up and it said for whatever reason, the crowd just gets excited and they all start to move in and take pictures. And he ended up like fighting with the crowd to get them to go back because he knew something inside. He said something has not blown up yet. There was like yeah. there was one that didn't go off. And so he like is fighting everything, everybody back. He said like two minutes later, they said like a big barrel drum just goes firing into the air. Like it just blew <laughs> oh, up. Yeah, it's good. He job, knew man. just from watching it that everything didn't explode so like it was supposed it. to. Yeah. So, so he gets an idea of how to uh, execute, you know, the exploding head. They've been having so much trouble. And uh, so he's like, everybody, you know, They've got a small crew. They're shooting this in like a warehouse. They couldn't shoot it. You know, they, they've obviously filmed a lot of that scene in, in like a um, lecture hall in a college, but they couldn't exactly shoot this scene there. So they recreated the wall outside in like a warehouse uh, where it would be a lot safer. And he the tells everyone. gave them a wharf. Like a uh, wharf. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, like, yeah. It was like, it's cold. They said it was like freezing cold, but this is yeah. like a lot of interiors. They said they'd have to shoot in like these areas that are just like these frozen areas. <laughs> So so he tells the crew, he's like, okay, everyone go get in your car, windows up, everybody get in your car. And then here's his idea. This is hopefully I can explain this where you guys can follow because it's very, very technical. Um, He laid down behind the head off camera and shot it with a shotgun. With rock salt. Nice, nice. <laughs> and there, I wish that there was footage of him doing that. There, there are photos of him laying behind it, like from, from the side, from a profile, like pointing the gun at it. But there's no like footage of him actually pulling the trigger, which would be fun to see. That yeah, so that, that's how one of the most famous death scenes in all of horror movies got made. Is like a guy literally just shot it with a shotgun and blew it up. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That scene, by the way, it was supposed to originally open the film, which is hard to imagine. Like, because that, I mean, imagine that that whole lecture scene being the very first thing you see in this movie. Uh, but it was so shocking to preview audiences that they actually found it harder to kind of pay attention to the rest of the film's fairly, you know, complicated plot because they were just like so shocked by seeing this head explosion. It's so crazy just them making that thing, but they, um, cause they were using two, like just besides the head, you know, the hands are sitting there on the, the desk. And it was like, uh, that was, um, oh, what's his name? Um, Dupuis, I think. No, it was, was his. Uh, yeah, it was either Dupuis. It was a mold of one of the guy's hands. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it was the other guy they said was really helpful on set. And I can't for the life of me think of his name. His initials are like C, uh, Chris Wallace was, Chris Wallace. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wallace. Yeah. Chris Wayless. It was his arms. And then they used like foil from one of their cigarette packs to make his wedding ring or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they put it on there, but uh, it was like mortician's wax or something. Uh, Ironside says he was there and they were going to shoot the scene originally, like the side by side. And he said that th- they got to the point that it was like the shotgun was going into play. And he swears he was like, they were, he's like, okay, so I'm going to sit here. And you're going to shoot this thing with a shotgun. And they're like, yeah. And he's like, okay. 
uh, he's like, I've worked behind the camera a lot. So I assume you'll have plexiglass to protect your equipment. Right. And they're like, yeah, because, because buckshot's going to be flying all around uh, when you do this. They're like, yeah, maybe. And he's like, okay. He said, I I thought about it for a minute. I'm like, all right, well, I need all of this money and I need you to get me this insurance policy. (laughs) And they're like, you know what? We'll just make it like a one shot. Just that guy on screen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) uh, Smart guy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess what they ended up using is a, uh, Zeller says they ended up using a uh, kosher salt in the yeah. actual uh, thing that shot it because it would show up or look good on camera and would like, catch some of the particles and like make them fly even more. Yeah, and you wouldn't see any metal or anything. Yeah, he said oh. he recommended. Uh, he said he would not recommend you trying to blow someone's head up with a shotgun, but if you did, use kosher salt. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they shot it like three or four more times, but they ended up using the very first. Uh, the very first shot that they got. So Sam and Dean from Supernatural. I mean, they also stand by Salt Rock. Well, that's because Salt works better on Ghost, right? Right, right. Demons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So all in all, the film had about nine weeks to shoot, which was Cronenberg's longest shoot yet on a budget of about $5 million, which was his biggest budget yet. Uh, But because they had such a short preparation period and such a difficult production, Cronenberg requested from the producers, he requested a very long post-production period so that they could you know mold this into the movie that they wanted to using all of these kind of almost like scraps because they, it was so so difficult uh the producers were a little bit worried about the exploding head sequence causing a problem with the mpaa you know we've had some issues with cronenberg films in the past where he's had to fight with the censors uh, so they actually shot an alternate take where the scanner just dies of a heart attack like uh, revic just makes him have a heart attack which is boring and I do think that if that had been what was released, the film would not have the reputation that it has now. That exploding mm-hmm. head was integral to the film's success <laughs> at the box office. So I'm, I, I think they might, maybe they use the alternate take on like TV edits of this though. Okay. I bet they do. I bet they do. Which is interesting considering what's on TV now, but. Well, yeah, yeah, right. but uh, not back in the eighties. <laughs> The Scanners was released on January 14th, 1981 in the U.S. It was released two days later in Canada, and critical reception was mixed. Uh, It did get good reviews, but some of the country's top critics were not super fond of it. Uh, Roger Ebert, who's been pretty hit or miss, mostly miss, I think, if I remember right, on Cronenberg's film so far, uh, he gave Scanners two out of four stars, saying, quote, Scanners is so lockstep that we are basically reduced to watching the special effects which are good, but curiously abstract because we don't care much about the people they're happening around. And then Vincent Canby, uh, the film critic for the New York Times, said, uh, quote, had Mr. Cronenberg settled simply for horror as John Carpenter did with his classic Halloween, Scanners might have been a grand guignol treat. Instead, he insists on turning the film into a mystery, and mystery demands eventual explanations that, when they come in Scanners, underlined the movie's essential foolishness so there were you know there were some pretty big critics that were not a fan of this i I would say i dare say some of these critics needed a nap i do have to say one thing before we talk about more naps actually maybe these people need a nap too um i'm just going to put this out there that this roger ebert review where he talks about the grand guignol thing. 
Well, that was uh, that was Vincent Canby, but who I don't care. Vincent Canby, <laughs> whatever. You guys, you need an app. Not Roger Ebert, rest in peace. Um, the, but the the uh, the final nap. Yeah, the final nap. I was like, there's nowhere, no way to get out of this now that I've mentioned <laughs> this. But the uh, um, the uh, the thing is, is that I had I don't know that I had heard. I, I don't care if this makes me less of a movie nerd than all of you. Um, I don't know that I'd heard the grain guignol thing, but I ignored it the first time. The term? Yeah. We've, I, we've mentioned it on this show before. We've had this conversation before, I feel like. I don't know if that's true, but even <laughs> if it is, this even further solidifies my point that this is not a freaking word that you use regularly. But I saw it, and I blame maybe this Canby guy for this, but I saw it in multiple, multiple <laughs> reviews of this movie. And I'm like, there is no way all these people are just thinking of it. Like, this could have been the Grand Guignol thing. Go F yourself. Like, what? Really? <laughs> I mean, like, it, it is a fairly commonly used terms, when, especially when discussing horror. No, I don't, not by me. And I talk about <laughs> horror a lot. And so I'm just, just throwing that out there. I, I, maybe there are other people out there who agree. I'll, I'll take weird. Gary's side on this. I, I, I'm, that's... I'm unfamiliar with that. As I well. don't think I've ever think been in a conversation with Justin Bishop where he's just casually mentioned grand guignol. No, I don't, I don't <laughs> use it. I'm just saying it is used. I, I've read it quite a lot. You know? uh, but I, I know say. we've talked about it on the pat on the, on the show before. I know we have. Yeah, whatever. I'll find out which one <laughs> I'll find out which episode we talked about it on. Anyway, Gary, tell us about what the reviews you found on the internet well i need an app after that but the uh <laughs> no the um there were plenty of people that saw this movie and were not big fans and they had a lot to say about it and they're probably gonna need a nap afterwards uh let's see here's one from amazon i forgot to put the person's name but they said i'm not sure if it was the wooden acting or the pedantic dialogue contrived purely uh here's another one of these assholes straw and antistrophy is that a thing i don't even know what that is i don't know what that is either it's a purely strophy slash antistrophy style now look at this now we got to do this antistrophy like this should have been part of your uh, yeah preparation. the second <laughs> section of an ancient greek choral ode or of one division of okay whatever for plot <laughs> exposition i'm not sure if it was that uh that killed this film for me, I felt I was being dragged through a film that would have been better rendered as a novel. Let's see what they're going for here. But even in a novel, the character relationships wouldn't have worked. Suffice or suffice to now I'm questioning everything. It's suffice. Um, <laughs> suffice to say, Gary's learning how to read today. <laughs> that in my view, this this reviewer is too smart for me. That in my view, if characters and concepts aren't introduced in action, they don't exist. Hemingway used to say that. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, fuck this person. <laughs> <laughs> Hemingway used to say that if you, I just saw it was long and it seemed like they were complaining a lot. So I just copied and pasted it. Here. Gary, <laughs> uh, it, it, it still does. It still shocks me that you don't actually read these before we go to record. Sometimes I think it's fun to, to find out together. <laughs> Until they suck. <laughs> let, me do the short, let me do the short version of that review. I'm so lonely. Uh, actually, so lonely, uh, guys. Hemingway used to say that if you used an adjective, you didn't use the right noun. 
Well, if you have to have explicit exposition using tedious dialogue between two flat characters and a tableau, you haven't selected the right actions to film. The film started with a fine sequence in which most critical knowledge about the characters was conveyed wordlessly. Unfortunately, the characters did open their mouths and ceased to be real people. They became simply bloodless instruments to explain the plot, revealing Mr. Cronenberg's utter contempt for his audience. It seems as if he forgot that just because people can't scan, it doesn't mean they can't make inferences. The film culminates in a Scooby-Doo style big reveal scene containing perhaps half the script, but none of the justification for the revealed secrets. It's hard to suspend disbelief for long enough to reach that point. I mean, couldn't they have just scanned each other's minds for all this expository information? It's impossible to do anything once the big reveal scene begins except distractedly read the DVD's packaging material looking for the runtime to see how long the antagonist's explanation or this review will last. This film's tiresome devices made me long for the comparatively engrossing characters and carefree plot of, say, a film based on an I Am Ron novel. I, uh... Wow. That person needs to be given a wedgie. <laughs> <laughs> That's maybe the best one. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to agree with them because I, I just can't. This person says, uh, I'd rate this with the worst movies I've ever seen. I found it boring, muddled, badly acted, and not even particularly horrific. About halfway through, the budget for Exploding Head seems to have run out, and the movie takes a nosedive to even lower depths of awfulness. At about the same point, I and my family members begin making wisecracks and not really caring what happened anymore. It's that kind of movie. Scanners 2 is a better movie and kept me modestly amused, but not this one. Bold, that's a bold statement. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Collective Drivel said, you ever have a movie you've been meaning to watch for so long and you end up st starting and finishing a degree before you actually sit down and watch it? And you know what? In all that time, nobody warned you that this film was boring. This film must be a joyride if you love old men in suits. Like the first 15 minutes are amazing. Then the rest of the film were just dull. I don't want to be too mean, but honestly, this film felt like it lasted three times its runtime. I honestly wish I hadn't watched this. I don't think I've felt this bored and uninvested in a movie for a long, long time. Ooh. Finally, from Inspector Gadget, the person who needs the biggest nap, I believe, says... Well, the act, uh, is this the, the, the real person. Inspector Gadget? Is mm -hmm. this a ver verified account? Well, it's Inspector Gadget, but it could easily be like Dr. Claw impersonating Inspector Gadget. Uh, it's like, could be Penny. because you with bad reviews, Gadget. I think it could be Penny. I think that was really murdered, good. <laughs> uh, maybe she's murdered the inspector and assumed his identity. Well, let's see. Would Penny say this? Having seen scanners, despite many movie magazines hyping it during my youth and several home video incarnations coming and going over the years, I naively assumed that it would be as good as hype led me to believe. It's not. It's a ramshackle, barely coherent bore populated by the most unattractive cast of characters, gruesome early 80s fashion, the dull, depressing production design, sound effects that are about one second out of sync, laughable technology, a musical score that sounds like a cat fitting on a broken synthesizer in some of the worst acting I have ever seen. Uh, I mean, listen, say what you want about this movie. And I mean, I've my cards on the table i like this movie a lot but you can't talk shit about howard shore's score uh it is it is very synth driven but it is uh perfect for this movie i think i think it's i think i think his work on all of cronenberg's movies is just absolutely stellar 
So those reviews, you know, uh, not these reviews necessarily, because these weren't out at the time, but the reviews of, you know, Roger Ebert, Vincent Canby and the like, uh, they didn't stop audiences from going to see the film. And they were not necessarily in the, in the majority. It was like 50-50, you know, negative to positive reviews. But the film proved to be pretty popular with audiences. Uh, it actually proved to be David Cronenberg's biggest financial hit so far, uh, grossing over $14 million at the box office. Uh, he had finally broken into the mainstream, not just in Canada, but in the U.S. This movie put him on the map. You know, he was on the cover of Fangoria. He was on the cover of uh, Cine Fantastique. You know, like this, he had arrived as like one of the masters of horror uh, even in 1981, when the f- movie was released, Scanners was already known as the movie where the guy's head explodes. And the early buzz around the film was heavily focused on that scene. Um, and it's I, I made a comment about this earlier, but it's very possible that the film's box office success hinged on people wanting to see this dude's head blow up. Uh, this was a time when you know, think of what think of where horror movies were in the late seventies, early eighties, gore was King at this Mm. time, you know, in in the late seventies and early eighties, horror had really started to move into a more like visceral, violent direction. Uh, You had Romero's Dawn of the Dead. That was a big part of that. uh, As was Ridley Scott's alien, which came out just a couple years, both of those a couple years before this, Uh, both great films, both great showcases for special effects, uh, both containing some remarkable moments of gore, uh, 1980 saw the release of Friday the 13th, a film that sort of solidified that what horror movie fans wanted was gore and mm. cool looking prosthetics blowing up and getting stabbed and whatever. Uh, and it wouldn't be long before we got special effect showcases like The Howling and American Werewolf in London, uh, both 1981, John Carpenter's The Thing, which came out not long after Scanners. The difference in those films, uh, not necessarily the, the John Carpenter's The Thing, but in some of these films is that the difference between I'd say something like Friday the 13th, you know, the, the, the slasher movies that were coming around at this time, or even, even Dawn of the dead, uh, you know, I love all those movies, but Cronenberg's doing something very different here in that there's no like tongue in cheek moments, you know, there's no fun deaths. I, I mean, yeah, it's fun to watch the guy's head explode, but it's not like there are the movies, not just like peppered with kills for the sake of kills, you know, right. For, there's not a lot of like fun. There's not a lot of people making wisecracks after a death or anything like that. Cronenberg uh, is very clinical uh, throughout his career. He's a very clinical director. I think, I think that rubs some audiences the wrong way. I think a lot of people find him very cold as a result, uh, but there's really no levity in his films. There's not a lot of, jo- there aren't jokes. There's nothing to like make the audience feel at ease. Uh, like there are in a lot of these other horror films, mm. which is him in general. I mean, you even hear like Stephen uh, Supoy talk about him or anything. They're just like, he's quiet, calm, dry sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, he's not like arrogant or anything. I mean, he seems like a good guy, but he, uh, but yeah, he's, he's a very much, they'll say like, uh, you, you, you know, he'll, he'll be calm and then it's like time to go. And then he's like really quick. And then he's back to just being like, rock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, if I'm being honest, as much as I love that head explosion scene, because uh, it's it's super fun, no matter how many times I see it, it's a super fun uh, effect. But I think the film's finale, that bat- the battle between Revic and Vale, absolutely tops that head explosion scene. I think 
I love the finale of this movie. I think it's an incredible piece of filmmaking. Uh, there's a reason that that image of Michael Ironside where he's screaming with the like white out eyes, you know, where he's like super taut, tense. Yeah. There's a reason that that's used on nearly every like poster and piece of promotional material for this film. It is an incredible image that the, the shot in particular where they're shooting him through the fire well, I think Cameron's already caught on fire and there's like, I guess they put a fire bar in front of the camera and shooting him kind of in the distance with those whited out eyes. It's, it is just a, just a super cool moment, just a great intense moment. Uh, I mean, the entire film is leading up to this moment. And I feel like Cronenberg knows that, like he knows that, that the whole movie is sort of building towards a confrontation between Revick and Bell and Cronenberg knew he had to stick the landing and they actually went back and reshot that scene because I guess he felt like he didn't, it didn't quite live up to what it needed to be the first time. So they went back and reshot it. Uh, and I think he absolutely sticks the landing because I think the finale of this movie is, is pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's such a small detail of what's going on, but like when uh, Stephen Lang's eyes pop, <laughs> i mean because yeah. she my wife was you know you know buried in her phone she didn't care um but i i almost came out of my seat of just like oh shit yeah. <laughs> it's great it is yeah, great. It's fun. so we talked a little bit about this before you watched it todd but you were trying to convince your wife to watch the movie because she's not big on horror movies mm. and you were kind of trying to convince her that this was more of a sci-fi movie yeah. Um, so that didn't convince her to really get into it though. No, no, yeah. not really. She, <laughs> she, she would, she would glance up every now and then and just kind of, mm, all right. <laughs> yeah. She's, I don't know. She just wasn't feeling this one. I think she's, but you uh, enjoyed it. I did. I did enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, it probably could have benefited from some more time on the script, a little bit better organization, better actors, all those things. And that's, and then that's fine. But like, as it is like, it's really solid. It's a really solid sci-fi think piece. I, you know, we were talking about, uh, you just finished talking about with this horror, there's not like a lot of jokes and stuff like that. And I feel like he's not making the horror. He's not making a horror comedy. He's making a horror drama. Like this is, this is a, you could almost like if you took out the whole scanner thing this might be some sort of like political thriller yeah like hey we're doing this thing and there's this computer that's involved and and you know we're you know this small group of people is going to take over this country and the world like that's a lot of political thriller uh yeah plots no, I absolutely agree. I, I, the, the fact is, I don't think that Scanners really is a horror film. I think it gets lumped in with horror because of Cronenberg's reputation prior to this and because right. there are, you know, at least two really good gore scenes. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned that this was on the cover of, of Fangoria. The exploding head was the cover image that Fangoria used. It was issue number wow. 10 of Fangoria. Nice. Uh, and so, like, the horror movie, the horror community embraced it because it was using stuff like that. But the plot, the movie itself is not really a horror movie. It is a sci-fi movie. Uh, and it is a sort of mystery espionage film. Yeah. It, it like, it's got the same kind of plot, like this sort of complex Byzantine plot that seventies conspiracy thrillers, like three days, three days of the condor, stuff like that 
uh, all the president's men, you know, these seventies conspiracy thrillers that were very popular at the time. It really feels like one of those movies. It's got a lot of the same stuff you would expect from those assassins, cover-ups, compromised spies. Uh, you know, it just throws in, uh, telekinetic abilities with some of the characters you know <laughs> like right, right. It, it's as if, it's as if the x-men were like in a 70s conspiracy thriller mm. yeah these, these are because mm-hmm. these are essentially this is like the x-men if every everyone was professor x <laughs> right yeah 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 everyone had the same <laughs> had the same uh abilities but i watched uh, this uh with the wife and she uh halfway through was like dude can we please watch something else? And so really? I had to stop. I, I stopped the movie and I wow. had to watch it on my own. She was not feeling it. I think that sometimes the I, I can see the issue, like when he talked about the brood. Um, it uh, it it like the way it's presented sometimes affects people. So I think if people come in expecting like a really sor- solid horror movie that's not what you're getting here this is mm. it's a, it's a, it's a it's a good enough i mean i think the movie's good enough like i it, i think the brood is way better than this movie i think the brood's um, way better uh but i i think this movie's really good it's it, is it top tier cronenberg probably not definitely not i mean it's not probably top 5 cronenberg i think i think but, it's the head i think that i think a lot of times the the Im- sometimes the image and maybe I don't know if this disappoints some people too, but like the, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't have changed anything as far as when the effects are used, but I don't know. I felt like there was a bigger impact with the brood, like that you get the weird shit, like at the very, very end of it, like the real. Yeah, I think, I think putting that head exploding scene at the beginning, the rest of the movie, if you're, it it, it creates expectations for the rest of the movie that the rest of the movie is not interested in providing. I tiptoed no, because around because uh, that's not the type of movie that it is until the final scene. Of course, I tiptoed around saying it, but in my notes, like when I was just like writing, just jotting down thoughts as I was watching it, one of them was, it's like, I could see a lot of people feeling like they're watching this movie, waiting around for people's heads to explode. Right. And that's not <laughs> what this is. That's what the sequels are, but that's yeah. not what this movie is. Not- <laughs> they, they get that down. They definitely <laughs> do that. The sequels and every sequel somebody's head explodes too yeah absolutely at least one Uh, person's head and this movie also gary you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier but this movie also maybe accidentally i don't know but it kind of felt found itself as part of a small movement in horror during this time where you had like brian de palma uh doing carrie you know that came out about five years before this uh it introduced the idea of a dangerous esp to mass audiences this was not something that was really seen in films prior to carrie uh, and then, of course, Carrie's based on a book by Stephen King. And a few years after he wrote Carrie, Stephen King wrote Firestarter, which is about a kid with psychic powers that also is also filled with like espionage and conspiracy and these like evil secret establishments. Um, it almost makes you wish that Cronenberg had filmed Firestarter as a film adaptation instead of Mark Lester, the guy mm-hmm. who did Commando doing it uh, because he would have been a little more uh, nuanced with it uh, but of course Cronenberg will get his chance to make his own King adaptation a couple of years after Scanners one that also deals with psychic abilities so we'll get to that in a, in a couple of weeks uh, and then of course De Palma you mentioned this before but De Palma followed up his Carrie adaptation with The Fury which is another film about dueling psychics and yeah. it's very much also a conspiracy thriller that also has people with psychic abilities in it it's a section of film 
filmography that I think uh, I'd like to blame uh, for the reason why nowadays you have people in funny Buffalo hats raiding the Capitol building and uh, <laughs> I don't think trying to can... find child torture porn basements and pizza shops. <laughs> I don't think we can blame Carrie and, and scanners on that. I think there's a, a, there's plenty we can blame on that, but I don't think these movies are it. I think you can blame <laughs> what you can blame these movies for are um, Friday the 13th part. What is it? Six where uh, with, with the psychic hundred yeah, percent. That, yeah, that's what you can. That's what you can blame Jason versus Carrie. Yeah, yeah, that's what you can blame uh, these movies on. Uh, is, is lesser horror movies. Using well, in that co- in that case, I take it all back because good, good job, everybody. Yeah, that movie rules. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Jason movies. It's so stupid, but uh, and honestly, like does seven by of- the way, just so nobody yells. Oh yeah, six six is. Uh, actually six is legit my favorite uh jason yeah movie. that's jason lives yeah, number seven yeah jason lives but jason seven is uh is the one where uh where he fights carrie basically but then you've also got movies like i don't know dream warriors came out i feel like dream warriors is part of that same lineage you know mm-hmm. uh anyway you know was this connected to lsd or something or was this the or what's the uh what's the other MK government ultra yeah, MK Ultra. Is this No, I don't think so, although uh, although MK Ultra is very much um connected to what has become modern conspiracy theories and people raiding the Capitol like you were just alluding to. MK Ultra is is definitely in paper, Project Paperclip. That's just very much the basis of that. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right now because I'll talk for an hour about it. I was uh, <laughs> please what's another hour? <laughs> uh, we can see in in this movie i think we can see david cronenberg moving further and further into the mainstream uh but he's not selling out like this is still very much a david cronenberg movie and you can say that about every david cronenberg movie Uh, no matter how mainstream they get i think uh the fly is probably his most mainstream at least until a history of violence uh but they all are very much David Cronenberg movies. Fast Company is the only real outlier in his filmography that doesn't really feel like a David Cronenberg movie. Uh, they all still feel like he's he's sticking to like his own personal themes, his own style, that cold, calculated style that he has. Uh, even though he's making movies for mass audiences now, this is a guy who started as an experimental filmmaker, and he's learned how to blend his personal style, that guy who was making experimental films, with what mainstream audiences want you know Mm -hmm. like his his style is starting to mesh better with what audiences are looking for and honestly i think you know as we see with each film he is just becoming a better filmmaker a better director um i mean scanners from a plot and structure standpoint is probably one of his most conventional movies you know it, it might not be his most exciting or his best but it's it's definitely one of his most conventional as far as comparing it to the traditional hollywood film especially the those conspiracy thrillers that were coming out at this time and that may be because it's so different than the brood which you know of course was immediately before this but the brood as we discussed in depth on our last episode was a very very personal film for cronenberg scanners is not scanners is him telling a story that he has no real personal connection to and maybe that's why it's not as good as the brood you know it's definitely less brooding less moody uh, though still more brooding and moody than probably most directors' films would be. Uh, but this is a, I, I, I would consider this a fast-paced thriller in that you know, a lot of those reviewers that Gary read said it was boring. I don't find it boring at all. Uh, but it's not like 
chase scene, action scene after action scene, but there are revelations one after another throughout this film, which all good mysteries and conspiracy thrillers should have, you know, a new plot point every five minutes to keep your attention. Uh, I, th- I think it's a pretty solid thriller that I think if you took the scanner stuff out of it and made it just about something else, like Todd was saying, it would make a really good just thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for the uh, assassins in the movie. I just why? thought of that. I don't know. Cause they, they get fucked up when they come in that barn. Yeah. And, and then they get <laughs> fucked up again while they're driving that truck or whatever. I mean, I they are hired killers. You know, I yeah. don't have a whole lot of sympathy for them. Like, These poor guys, they just don't know what they're getting into. I don't know why I just thought of that, but just thought I'd share <laughs> well, that. scanners also, strangely enough, has, has one of the most optimistic endings for a Cronenberg film. Uh, Shivers and Rabbit ended basically with the apocalypse, uh, while the brood had a more ambiguous ending, but definitely hinted that there was more terror on the way, because you know we see the little uh, bumps popping up on the little girl's arm or her hand at the end, so we know that there's more death to come. And uh, I'm not going to get into spoilers, but let's just say Videodrome, The Dead Zone, and The Fly don't exactly have happy endings. Uh, but <laughs> Scanners kind kind of does. It's ambiguous, but it seems like the good guys actually win at the end mm-hmm. you know it seems like cameron vale has defeated revic or they have somehow revic! <laughs> i love that guy man i iron side of this fucking movie man <laughs> he is firing yeah. on all cylinders in this yeah. movie one of the complimentary things he says about Cronenberg is that he's like he makes you feel comfortable that like you could uh do whatever you know you're you're in a safe space to just go all out like he'll you know dance on the edge he'll he'll break he'll he'll pull you back in if you get too close or something yeah and, uh, so <laughs> i forget how he describes it exactly and he said even like mark Irwin, like they talk and he's just like it's just gonna look bad and he's like man just go for it like it you know we'll either use it or we want like just 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 do what you gotta do nobody's nobody's gonna hate you know basically <laughs> and it's uh it's kind of kind of interesting so he he does he goes for it he sure movie. does, but but I think he's great. I think it's it's oh. one of the one of the great things that make this movie so good is, is Michael Ironside's performance. I would say he carries it. He carries yeah. a lot of this movie. Like he's so yeah, he's fantastic. Well, I can't well, imagine Gary, what so, it was going to be without him. Yeah, I can't either. Well, you mentioned that Jennifer d- didn't really like it, but you went back and rewatched it by yourself. Had you seen this before though? Was this the first time watched for you? Uh, I think I saw it like when I was a kid. You know, yeah, like a video or something. Yeah, but I I didn't remember much about it. So, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think it was a little slower paced than I expect. I mean, I guess I could see it being a little slower paced. I think I was ready for it because Cronenberg. Your four Cronenberg movies in. And his his, none of his movies are, like, action-packed. Yeah, exactly. And so I kind of, you know, expected that, you know, you're getting more sci-fi than horror. It's not what mm-hmm. you think. Like, even even though he's an old as the body horror guy, I, I, more and more as we get through it, I sort of feel like it's fair, but it's it's just a not a complete representation of David Cronenberg. No, I, I agree. I, I think the I think the body horror um, like title that he's been that has been bestowed upon him. It's it's not that it's not fitting because these are very much body horror films. This one less so maybe than than the previous ones that we've talked about, um, and definitely less so than uh, like The Fly. But I feel like it undersells a little bit what Cronenberg is really capable of because you can make a 
you can make a good goopy gory body horror film that has nothing to say but his movies are very they, they have more concerns than just grossing people out which is proven by the fact that there's very few actual body horror scenes in these movies i mean in this one there's the head exploding scene which is not really body horror i mean it involves a body uh and then maybe the final scene you could say and the brood it's only that final scene uh so th- this is not like a guy who's just these movies are just filled with scene after scene of grisly carnage, you know? I mean, Videodrome is a little more visceral, The Fly too, but none of them are really just giving you gore for the sake of doing it. That's not what he wants to do. He's just trying to tell a story, you know? It's weird. It's like, for some reason in... Not for some reason. This is just the way movies work. Some There's always like these scenes that just stand out. And so I think they just create a life of their own for this so like this is the exploding head movie or i don't know like you i mean if you're telling somebody about hereditary or like somebody just walked out of hereditary what's the first thing they're going to remember probably like tony collette sawing her head off or something you right, know yeah. but it's like uh it's like those things but that movie's not just that like it's uh there there's so much more to like some of these this and, and it, it, people seem to take to it the same way that I don't know the people who made Halloween sequels were just like, you know, my, and maybe this is lesser because Michael Myers is, you know, a granddaddy of the slasher genre kind of, but it's like, uh, he, it, there was more atmosphere and more going on. I feel like in that movie than just like Jaws is not just a shark movie, all these things. And all the uh, great ones ha- have a lot more going to them. Now, often the sequels will latch on to like the most sensational thing, you know, right. like the Halloween movies, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, people want to see kids getting murdered. Uh, but and yeah, that's what Halloween's about. But it wasn't exploitative in any way, the way that John Carpenter made it. Same with like the shark in Jaws, whereas the sequels, you know, isn't Jaws 2 the one where like the Jaws's cousin or somebody's hunting the Brody family? <laughs> like, it's, like it's a revenge mission. And the yeah. scanners, we'll talk about the scanner sequel in a, in a minute, but they very much took the most sensational element of this film, the head explosion, and just took that ball and ran with it. Yeah, that's know? that's that's where I was going. It's like it just it just feels like they were, you know, like with with Halloween, they're like, Do you a Halloween sequel? Michael Myers, yeah, feet fucking just kills people over and over again. Yep. All right. <laughs> then, then this one, they're just like scanners. What was that one? The, the guy's head explodes. Oh, yeah. Isn't Let's that do more of about? that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I was, yeah. Let's, fucking blowing people up on screen <laughs> so well let's talk about it then. so pierre david you know he he's the guy we mentioned earlier the producer who started working with cronenberg back on the brood was the producer this time again as well and he retained the rights to scanners uh so after this film was a fairly successful at the box office he decided uh to sign off on not one but two sequels to the film so these were shot back to back and released back to back there was scanners Two: the new order uh, and Scanners 3, The Takeover. They were I both did not written. know these were back-to-back. Yeah, they, they came out within a year of each other. Why don't they even have some of the same fucking people in them? Well, because they're totally different stories. But it's the <sighs> same team behind the, the the crew behind the scenes it just feels like you'd want some continuity in there well i mean they're not bringing back characters from the first film so why not just make each one about the greater scanners extended universe well uh (laughs) spoiler alert in part two it's the son of the two main characters in the first scanners well yeah yeah i mean it's it is related but and later a sister who's who they get killed so happy ending 
averted. <laughs> they, well, they're not around. The, those two are not in part two because they're dead because their revolution of scanners, the scanners decide a lot of the scanners decide they just need to take over humanity. They become like Magneto's forces. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so then they try to turn against the, or they're like, no, 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 we're, we're we must make peace with the humans. And anyway, well, yeah, the, the scanner sequels basically take the idea that the scanner it becomes a gene that can be passed on from one to the other, which sort of creates the idea that the scanners movies could go on for as long as you wanted to, because more and more people are producing more scanners. Uh, but both of these, the sequels were both written by a guy named BJ Nelson and directed by Christian Duguay, who is a Canadian director who's probably best known for the action movies of uh, screamers. Uh, which stars Peter Weller. Do you guys remember that from like the early 90s? Screamers. Oh, remember yeah. that. And then The Art yeah. of War with Wesley Snipes. Those are like his big hits. Cronenberg wow. uh, had no involvement in the sequels, though he does get a based on characters by credit. So I'm sure he got a paycheck from them. Uh, but uh, despite the fact that, you know, neither sequel features characters from the original film, uh, but both films are set within this scanners universe that kind of shows a more widespread proliferation of people with scanner abilities within our society. Uh, the films were released uh, direct-to-video in 1991 and 1992, and they were successful enough that Pierre David decided he'd make a couple more. So in 1994, Scanner Cop was released direct-to-video. Uh, this time, Pierre David acted not only as the producer, but the writer and director as well. Scanner Cop follows this, this guy. He's a rookie cop gets him you know right out of the academy uh he's also a scanner uh and he he was like part of you know his he was adopted but his parents were part of the the you know ephemeral thing uh, the ephemeral thing is a is a reoccurring motif through all these movies like different versions of ephemeral pop up in all of them but he's basically he's recruited because his dad's like the chief of police he's recruited to help investigate a string of murders against other cops so Scanner Cop was followed up by another sequel the, the following year, 1995, called Scanners, The Showdown, also known as Scanner Cop 2. Uh, it stars Daniel Quinn. The, he's the same guy who played the main character in Scanner Cop. So these are, this is like the first like true sequel where it actually has the same characters, Scanner Cop 2 to Scanner Cop. So Daniel Quinn, the main actor from the first Scanner Cop, uh, he's a little further in his career. He's a de detective now, and he's hunting for a serial killer who's targeting other scanners. Uh, so it's, a, it's, it's basically the first one, but yeah, but this, but this guy is, um, he's sort of su sucking the life force from other scanners to become more powerful. Mm, like high like a, he's like a scanner vampire. So it's scanner cop versus scanner serial killer. Uh, and nice. It's the only sequel to feature recurring characters from any of the other films. It was directed by a guy named Steve Barnett, who hasn't directed much else, but has had steady work as a production supervisor. Like he's still doing that now. He's the, the list of movies he works on is impressive, but he's, he's a production supervisor primarily these days. Uh, and Scanner Cop 2 was uh, from a script written by a guy named Mark Sevy, who wrote um, like Ghoulies 4 and a bunch of other direct-to-video garbage that you've never heard of. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> The, I think the sequels, I'll be honest, they're, they're all super fun. They're all worth watching, especially part three. Well, um, for like you said, four, four direct to DVD stuff. Uh, yeah. But part three is like just the 80 is it, 80 <laughs> movie you've ever seen. <laughs> and it is just fucking nuts. 
it's part, just, they're all pretty fun but part three is like i i would highly recommend watching part three and watch part two part two is worth watching it's fun but part three just like that's the one with the underwater head explosion right part three mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> which yeah. is nice. one of my favorite deaths in the whole series it's also the one where a guy gets his head like on the verge of exploding right where he's or is that scanner cop where the guy's like oh head, where it smashes his head no it is part no, three the, yeah. this guy his head gets really big but it never quite gets to the explosion but he part. doesn't blow it up all the way but yeah. so he's just got a big misshapen head <laughs> <Yeah>. the <laughs> so dumb. um but uh scanner and those are easier to find scanner cop two and three they um you can find them i'm sure you probably sh- streamed them somewhere gary right yeah i just read it honestly yeah i i bought the scream factory uh, shout factory like double feature because it's like 12 bucks for both for both movies there are no special features or anything but if you want the movies they're they're really inexpensive scanner cop one and two though they were released on 4k ultra high death from vinegar syndrome back last fall and i bought that set and i've been waiting till now to watch it and I'm really glad I did because first of all, seeing these movies in like the highest definition, this is just what vinegar syndrome amazes me. I'm not going to go on this huge rant about vinegar syndrome, but I'm a huge fan of them because they take movies like this and treat them like absolute royalty, you know, and nice. give them the 4k treatment, special features, the works and scanner cop two and three, you know, they've, they've both got, they've got interviews like behind the scenes things with Pierre David. Uh, so it's really fun, but, they're both really fun to watch. And the guy, Daniel Quinn, who plays the cop, makes the absolute best scanning, best slash worst scanning faces of anyone <laughs> in the whole series. That's the and, other weird part, right? It's like, oh, well, go go ahead. You you finish what you're saying. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, that's, that's the part that's going to be hard to overcome for any one of these movies is that, yes, it is some actors like just being fucking weird staring at each other. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, and uh, I think, I think that's, um, I think the the sequels kind of prove that there's a fine line between eerie and goofy when it comes to just like showing multiple shots of people staring intensely at each other. (laughs) Because watching the sequels, as fun as they are, it proves just how much of a master of tone Cronenberg really is because he managed to have a bunch of those scenes without it coming across as goofy. But every single time people do it in the sequels, it's really silly uh, because it's just it's just people staring. And you know that off screen, they were just like, practicing making like a vein pop out of their head daniel quinn every time he's on screen i'm like there is no way he didn't pop an o-ring or something when he was filming that scene because it looks <laughs> painful uh, uh but but the sequels also uh it, well the the second one scanner cop 2 i can't remember on scanner cop 1 i'm sure he did both but uh Jar- john carl beekler who's a special effects artist he died a couple years ago but uh, he got his start on, you know, Charles Band movies and stuff, but he also did Friday the 13th Part 7. He did. Yeah. Uh, he, Makes I think sense. he direct, he directed Part 7, if I remember right. Perfect. Uh, he did, like, Ghoulies 3. Uh, he did a couple of the Ghoulies movies. Anyway, um, he is a special effects guy who, who worked with, like, Stuart Gordon. He did uh, From Beyond. But he does the gore effects on, on the Scanner Cop movies. And honestly, Scanner Cop 2 has some of the best kills of the entire series. Uh, if, if you're just a fan of like practical gore effects, watch Scanner Cop 2 because it's worth your it's worth your hour and a half just to see the kills in that movie. They're nice. really fun. They're really, really good because the way that this like serial killer uses his power, it sort of shrivels the person as he takes their life force. 
And they do that practically where a person just starts like imploding. Like the, the first one is goopy as hell. Uh, it's really fun. <laughs> nice. Anyway, I watched five scanner movies this past week or so, and including watching the first one more than once, but uh, I enjoyed every one of them immensely. So I would highly recommend they, they, they all go more in the direction of what you would expect, like that they just want to, it's, it's all about blowing people up or something. Right. Every every single one at some point is going to blow somebody's head up. It loses and, all of the nuance of Cronenberg's movie and mm. all of the thoughtfulness and the intellect and just focuses on the sensational silliness of, of the idea of there is a sub race of human beings that have the ability to make your head blow up. Or and it, it's like an evolution, I'd imagine. Gun. I, I yeah. didn't get to see Scanner Cop. Uh, it's not sc- streaming anywhere, but like the um, the two and three, it's like it 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 evolves. So like Scanner yeah. Cop two or Scanners two is a mix. It's got a way more gory. Scanners two definitely has one foot in that like cold calculated Cronenberg world. Part three, they're like fuck all that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just do the fun <laughs> stuff. Part three, they just have fun. Um, yeah. I will say, Scanners it's honestly 2, wild that they're the same director because they're so wildly different in tone it, it's true and yeah. i will say uh, be prepared too if you watch scanners too it's like going from professor x versus magneto to like uh about jubilee and cypher or something <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> nice right. Right. Far, so, in terms of x-men yeah <laughs> so over the years there have been talks of a scanners remake i think daryl and boozman who's done several of the like saw movies including like spiral the most recent one, I think he was attached to it for years. There was even talks of a TV series, but there hasn't been a lot of movement on either in recent years. Although I honestly think the idea of a Scanners TV series is pretty solid. Like not necessarily remaking the David Cronenberg's original story, but using the idea of, you know, this experimental drug causing people to have these abilities. And there's this whole underworld like that could make for a very intriguing TV show, I think. When the credits, uh, when Kat and I were watching it and the credits started to roll, I was like, honestly, I'd love to see this as a series. Yeah. I, I think there are so many interesting concepts, what you just said, that you could easily flesh this out to, you know, six to 12 episodes. Yeah, and, the universe really is right for like just exploration of the stories that you could tell. Yeah. I think it could be really cool if somebody ever, ever ended up doing that. Like since eight. Yeah, kind of, but with less yeah. fucking. <laughs> I mean, speak for yourself. <laughs> so um since eight was so, really educational wasn't it because i mean it was like every kind of fucking uh, yeah it's <laughs> diverse <laughs> so uh while, since we're talking about the sequels and stuff let's talk about uh further viewing our further viewing segment uh if you guys were to take scanners and do a double feature with another film that's similar in plot similar in theme however you want to you know link it up what would make a good double feature with scanners for you I feel like I've gone first the past couple of times. I'm going to force Gary's hand here. <laughs> All right, Gary, go for it. Yeah, I was looking at a movie called Jurassic Shark. I think that would, be... <laughs> I think that would fit. <laughs> it would be a jarring double feature. Um, no, I, I think we've already said like most of the ones I would recommend, you know, like talking about Carrie or something or, yeah. uh, mm, you know, yeah. I mean, any any of Cronenberg's other movies that we've talked about, honestly. And uh, I'm trying to think of anything. I don't know. I'll just go with that. Carrie. Yeah, care. Well, I, I was I would go with the Fury. 
uh, which is all, you know, Brian De Palma's movie from after Carrie. I actually watched The Fury last night. I'd never seen it and I kept seeing it pop up in discussions on Scanner. So I was like, "Ah, well, that's a pretty good excuse to watch a Brian De Palma movie that I've never seen, uh, which doesn't take much to nudge me in that direction. So I watched The Fury. Um, It came out a couple years, came out 1978. So a couple years before this, but it stars uh, Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes and Amy Irving. And yeah, it's it's basically, it's very similar in that it's, yes, it is about characters with um, with psychic abilities, tele, telekinetic abilities, but it's also very much like a conspiracy thriller. Uh, and you've got like, you know, shadowy government agencies and things like that. It's So it makes for a pretty good double feature because it's pretty similar in that aspect, but a very different movie because it's, still a Brian De Palma movie. It's a little bit of a Brian De Palma feels like a uh, directing for hire gig. You know, that's what it kind of feels like. Cause it doesn't have a lot of his like visual quirks it has some, but there's no like split screen or anything like that. Things that you expect from a Brian De Palma movie, uh, but it's still worth checking out And Kirk Douglas is pretty great in it. He's like 62 years old in this movie. And he's running around like an action movie star hanging off buildings. And, you know, he's a kind of a badass. It kind of, Proves why, how that guy lived to be 103 years old. Yeah. Uh, and it's got a great <laughs> score from John Williams, of all people. Nice. Yeah, so nice. It's, it's worth checking out. It's I, I don't know if it's... I, I had to rent it. It's not streaming anywhere. I think I rented it on iTunes or something, but uh, it's good. It's not as good... I would say it's not as good as Scanners. I don't think it's as interesting as Scanners, uh, but it's really good, and it's got a... It's got a... It's got a, a death at the end that rivals the head explosion scene wow Wow. yeah (laughs) so that would be my pick cool um i was gonna say uh you know based on like the tone and everything outside of the head exploding uh, i feel like a lot of these things uh match up with most of the films that are based on the works of philip k dick you guys know i'm a big philip sure. k dick fan yeah Tom loves big dick fan yeah i love yeah i trust me i love a big dick <laughs> <laughs> uh no but I, I i think like uh you know i mean we already mentioned total recall and of course it's got the you know the michael ironside connection there i'm a big fan of minority report but i mean really a lot of these fit a lot of the philip k dick um you know works would probably fit there because you got the shadow government people involved with, you know, some type of drug that, you know, alters their state of mind in one way or another. And uh, yeah. So I think I'll, I'll say minority report. Yeah. How about uh captain America, the winter soldier? I was, I thought about <laughs> that too. And I was like, Oh, but it's Marvel. Yeah. But that movie, absolutely. That movie is very inspired by some of those seventies conspiracy thrillers that we talked very about much. earlier. I mean, it, yeah. it is, it is a basically a seventies conspiracy thriller with superheroes. It's even got Robert Redford in it. Yeah. So, yep. <laughs> you know, I, I think that could actually work. Honestly. Absolutely. I just found this site called movie list and, uh, it 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 it's got a thing where you can look like movies like or yeah ten best movies like and I, I pick scanners and it gave me I'll give you the first three yeah. uh, it's a uh, first one is Venom Let There Be Carnage twenty twenty one all right I I'm not sure how <laughs> I saw it the movie's fine but no uh, <laughs> the next one's called The Recall. 2017 not total recall the recall no but but same font uh on their poster <laughs> here 
I don't think we need to. I don't think we need to trust this website. <laughs> I don't think so. The, the description of the movie is: When five friends vacation at a remote lake house, they expect nothing less than a good time, unaware that Earth is under attack by an alien invasion and mass abductions. I don't see it. And then number three is Grindhouse from 2007. None of these are good suggestions. <laughs> this movie, what is this site doing? <laughs> anyway. I should say that poor Stephen Lack, one of my favorite parts of the interview with him is that uh, that notorious Canadian tax system got him, man. He, uh, oh, no. he said he said that uh, by the time he finished this movie, he was the highest paid Canadian actor in a Canadian film. Uh, he said he said it was still like five figures. So he was not making, you know, like as much as like these people actually making it. But it was pretty good. And he was pretty proud, but he was getting paid on December 30th. And he immediately entered the highest tax bracket. Couldn't they have delayed his payment or something <laughs> or just like given it to him in installments? He Well, so what they did is he, he said he ended up having to find this thing. It was called the income averaging annuity program that they had. And he dumped it all in there. And uh, so it let him keep a lot of it, but it had to, he basically had to give it back to the government and they would pay him little bits of it every year. Yeah. So he kind of did get an installment, but just through the government. That's very yeah, strange. Guess, yeah. <laughs> uh... So after scanners, Cronenberg had actually planned on working on a version of Frankenstein at the suggestion of Pierre David. And, and it kind of makes sense. I found this out. I actually read the uh, scanners Fangoria article from 1980 oh, nice. uh, where, where scanners was on the cover and they, they revealed this and, and, and Cronenberg talks about it a little bit, you know, what his idea for the character would be. And it does kind of make sense. Frankenstein's monster is sort of the ultimate example of body horror, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. the plot keeps that sort of mad scientist experiment gone awry theme that we get in a lot of Cronenberg movies. So when you think about it, like a Cronenberg Frankenstein adaptation, that sounds makes, pretty dope. Honestly. Makes total sense, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it never came to fruition. I couldn't find out why it's just one of those Hollywood unmade movies that just doesn't get made for whatever reason. Uh, instead, Cronenberg's next film is one that is often considered by many critics to be his best. Uh, although it did not do particularly well at the box office when it was released, but we'll get into that when we discuss it. Uh, it was released two years after Scanner, starring James Woods and Debbie Harry. Uh, the subject of our next episode is Videodrome, and I am nice. excited to watch it because I haven't seen it in years. I recently up upgraded my Criterion DVD to a Criterion Blu-ray for that one because... It, that's what i I've bought been, too yeah i've been wanting to i've been wanting to upgrade that one for a while and this gave me an excuse to do so so uh, i'm really excited to revisit it because it has been a long time and i i remember really enjoying it i'm excited to see what kind of because this is where so we'll we'll get into it more probably next week when we talk about it but you know cronenberg's first couple of movies are slightly horny you know like their their <laughs> sex is a major component especially shivers right i feel like you know, the brood is not particularly and scanners is completely asexual. Uh, I feel like Videodrome is where he starts getting horny again. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and he gets progressively hornier. I mean, Crash is probably his horniest movie, uh, which we're not going to talk about on this series. But, you know, it's it's part it's something that David Cronenberg is known for, not just body horror, but sex in his films as well. Or, you know, mm. uh, sexual perversions and things like that. And Videodrome dives into that very, very much. 
<laughs> uh, but that'll be fun we'll talk about that next week if you guys want to watch it along with us uh, you can find it streaming online i'm sure head to cinemashock.net we'll have links where you can find it streaming on there uh, you can also find all of our episodes on there you can find links to our discord links to buy our merch links to all of our social media all that stuff we're at uh, cinema shock cinema underscore shock that's our twitter and our instagram uh, you can uh, also find us on facebook and stuff and, uh, and and find me on Instagram too because I've been keeping up with a list of uh, all the movies that we talk about on the show. Uh, I need to start doing a further viewing. I need to start doing like a further viewing list on Letterboxd. I think that would be really fun, but I'd have to go back and listen to a bunch of episodes and I'm not going to do that. Uh, so if anybody <laughs> else wants to listen to our old episodes and tell me what the further viewings that we all picked were, then let me know. Uh, but yeah, you can find a running list of every movie we've talked about. And, you know, we're doing that Cinema Shock roulette in between s- series here. Uh, I've got a, a list. It's a public list now of all the Cinema Shock roulette possibilities. We're up to about, it's up to about 100 movies at this point so which we'll never talk about them all because we're talking about them one at a time in between months long series but it gives somebody's afraid they're not gonna live long enough (laughs) for us todd we're gonna live forever (laughs) well uh and you can find me on letterbox at justin (laughs) underscore bishop that's also my twitter and instagram uh where can you guys be found on the internet i bet this is gary horde (laughs) fuck you todd let's do do one at a time (laughs) i bet this is gary horde and uh, Star Trek is your thing. Uh, please uh, come find my podcast, the Computer Resume podcast, available wherever you get your podcast. We're covering the entire franchise in chronological order with a rotating panel of uh, my friends and comedians and authors and actors. It's a lot of fun. And uh, you can reach us on all the socials at Computer Resume. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and D&D Beyond. He's back to doing the D&D Beyond thing. Yeah. He started playing again. I'm getting into it more, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. And you? Did you already say yours, Gary? I already said. I said this is Gary Horn. That's what you need Uh, to know. That's all you need to know. Leave me alone otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Please please do not contact me. Uh, So, all right. Well, that's it for this week. Until we meet again. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. All right. We're going to do this the scanner's way. I'm going to suck your brain dry. Everything you are is going to become the keys. You're going to be with me, Johnny, no matter what. After all, brothers should be close, don't you think? Oh, you didn't even say Johnny has the keys. Yeah, you just referenced yeah Johnny I know. Has. I worked you, it you, in. You, you referenced in. Johnny and the keys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. I'll, all right. I'm okay with that. Yeah, so, so just it doesn't have to say Johnny has the keys anymore. It just has to have the words Johnny yeah, and keys. You know, it. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch it up every now and then. It may still I may still do Johnny has the keys at the end, but um, you know, this one I wanted to play around with it a little bit. It'll be surprised though. But sometimes it can be abrupt, like that ending. I wasn't sure when it was over. <laughs> <laughs> well, the show's over now. Well, it's been very disappointed that I forgot to use this for the last few times. I only ever used it once. So uh, real quick, I'm going to break out how to reach your favorite stars, too. Yes. Uh, this is supposed to be a thing every week. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it, and, uh, wait, only if somebody from that book is in the movie, though. 
No, I'm just, just going to open it randomly. Because I'm going to go ahead and say that Stephen Lack is probably not in that book. No, probably not. But you know who is? Boys to Men. Boys yeah. To men. Wow. <laughs> Four young Philadelphia guys with universal appeal. They started out as students in Philadelphia's High School of Creative and Performing Arts. The year was 1986. And the mix of cool harmonies they put together, put them on the map at school. But real success came their way after they snuck backstage at a Bell Biv DeVoe concert and got a chance to sing for BBD member Michael Bivens. Now he's their manager, and these guys are doing some major chart busting. There you go. This is, re- this is really excellent material that we're. there's no way we're going to edit out of the, the show. <laughs> no way. <laughs> this is just captivating. Yeah, thank you. Uh, they Their musical highlights include their single End of the Road from the Boomerang soundtrack. So see, movie related. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. 